Today, we're going to continue our unhelpful series. Uh, last week, by the way, we talked about let go and let God and why that's so unhelpful. Then I ran across a meme this past week. Just, it just didn't happen in enough time. We talked about that whole idea of Jesus take the wheel, right? Um, and here's what the meme said. Stop asking Jesus to take the wheel. Cars didn't exist 2,000 years ago. He had no idea what he's doing, um, which I think is just, just fantastic. Um, today, however, I want to talk about this idea that God helps those who help themselves. Um, and on the surface, this seems like it's an encouragement to action, right? Which is exactly what we talked about last week. It's sort of, a, do we let go and let God? No, God wants our participation. God wants us to work with God to transform the world right here and right now. But I think there's something else going on with this idea of God helps those who help themselves. And I think it's grounded in a vision and an approach to the world that is unhelpful to say the least. So I thought it might be interesting to figure out where, where did this come from? Where did this idea of God helps those who help themselves, where did that come from? And it turns out, because it sounds as American as apple pie, doesn't it? Like it sounds like a, a thing that we would create here in the States. Uh, but actually it comes from ancient Greece and the original phrase saying was probably something like, the gods help those who help themselves. And it shows up, interestingly, in the work of an ancient Greek play, play, playwright named Sophocles, who wrote, No good air comes from leisure purposeless, and heaven ne'er helps the men who will not act. Right? So essentially, there's no good, nothing good comes out of relaxing. Heaven only helps those who will do something, who will help themselves. Now, the modern wording for us comes from an English political theorist from the 1600s named Algeron Sidney. Any Algeron Sidney fans? in the house. I was just expecting somebody to have heard him before because I have never heard of the guy. But here's what he wrote. But kingdoms and commonwealths acknowledging no superior except God alone can reasonably hope to be protected by him only. And by him, if with industry and courage, they make use of the means he has given them for their own defense, which is a way to say God helps those who help themselves. Right? So that's essentially where this saying comes from. And the next question that I always wonder is, like, is it in the Bible? Because doesn't that sound a little bit like something that might be in the Bible? Like it has a faint ring of something that might actually be found in Scripture? Well, it's actually not. But there are a couple of texts people reference when they want to support sort of this idea that God helps those who help themselves. And the main one is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And here's how it goes. Now we command you, siblings... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every sibling living irresponsibly and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not irresponsible when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living irresponsibly, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Siblings, do not be weary in doing what is right. Do you see how people boil that down to, well, if you're not going to work, you shouldn't eat. God helps those who help themselves. Now, here's what you need to know about 2 Thessalonians, because I think it's important. The letter claims to have been written by the Apostle Paul, um, but actually what scholars are able to deduce because of lots of things 
um, like the language, some of the things referenced, is that 2 Thessalonians actually could not have been written by the actual historical Paul because Paul died in the 60s. Uh, and 1 Thessalonians, which is the companion supposedly to 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians was the oldest letter of Paul's we have in the canon. It was written around the year 50. So the oldest New Testament document would have been 1 Thessalonians. But 2 Thessalonians, based on language, they could tell it's not actually from Paul. Based on things that are addressed, they can tell it's not actually from Paul. They date 2 Thessalonians to somewhere in the 110s. So 60 years after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, and about 50 years after Paul died in the 60s. So it's a, it's a text written in Paul's name, maybe to a community that had Pauline roots, right? They knew Paul. Paul had been a part of their community, and so when... Write it, when you get a letter from him, it carries a little more weight. Um, this is called pseudepigrapha, and it essentially is, is something really common in the ancient world. People often wrote in the name of other people. Uh, today in the modern world, we would just think that's terrible, right? But think about it, it's sort of a pen name. It's just somebody who actually lived and wrote letters, and you're just writing their coattails, right, is essentially what this is. Now, this passage in Second Thessalonians is actually dealing with an issue uh, that... If you read the New Testament, you'll know that lots and lots of the earliest Jesus followers expected what they thought the end would be, which wasn't the end of the world, it was the end of the age, but they expected the end to come in their lifetime, which is why you have Paul writing things like, if you're not married, don't get married, because right? the end's coming. It, 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 don't start anything new. Don't make any new plans. The end is going to come at any moment. And here's the truth. It did sort of. Because the end they were expecting was the, was, was the destruction of the temple. But it didn't happen like they'd hoped or expected. So you had these pockets of communities that followed Jesus who then said, well, that couldn't have been it. So now we have to look for, maybe there's going to be another thing. There's another day coming. And in this particular community, people were still living in the early second century. were still living like the end was going to come at any moment. And so nobody was doing anything. Nobody was engaging in the world. People had sort of withdrawn and, and had opted out. And what this writer is saying is like, look, go about your life. Be, be, a, be a participating part of the community. Engage. Don't withdraw. They were dealing with a very specific issue. Here's the problem when we take letters from the New Testament and universalize, because sometimes there are particulars in there. And what we tend to do is universalize the particular. Right? So we read something that was written to a community in the first or second century that's dealing with a specific issue, and we want it to sort of be a one-to-one -to, -one to our world, and sometimes it just doesn't work that way. Now, I do think that there are people in our world right now who are expecting the end to come at any moment. Uh, and do you remember, was it, the, was it like October of 2012 or something, that there was that one guy who was like, sell everything, and people were doing it? And they were just selling everything, and then the end didn't come, and then they had to go buy it all back again. And this writer is essentially saying, don't sell all your stuff. Go, go do some work, have something to contribute to the community, and engage. Th this text isn't speaking to us in the same way, un unless we're trying to just like sit around and watch the sky for something cool to happen. So, how does, so if it isn't, God helps those who help themselves in this text. What is the truth? And here's what I think. If you peruse the Bible from cover to cover, there's a lot of weird stuff in there, but there's also uh, some, some interesting threads that you can trace. And it seems to me the overwhelming message of the Bible 
is the opposite of God helps those who help themselves. It seems to me the overwhelming message of the Bible is that God tends to favor those who can't help themselves. One of the, maybe the foundational story of the Bible is the Exodus story. Right? The whole book of Genesis, by the way, is actually just trying to create the buildup, the foreshadowing to get to the Exodus. The Exodus is where history, in a sense, kicks off. And what happens in the Exodus story? Notice Exodus chapter 3. Moses is tending his father-in-law's flock, and he comes to a bush that is on fire but not consumed, and he has this impulse to take his shoes off because the ground is holy. And from that burning bush, God speaks to him. The Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt, the enslaved Hebrews. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. Here's what makes that radical. I mean, most of us have grown up in a culture where that is assumed, that this is how this God is, right? We, we saw the Ten Commandment movie with Charlton Heston in it. Some of us saw the Prince of Egypt, right? And so this story is just sort of one of those stories that it's, it's kind of it's two-dimensional. It's got height, and it's got width, but we've lost the depth. And I think what actually makes this story so radical is in the ancient world, they assumed the opposite. And there are still people who think this way today, that if you're wealthy and if you're powerful and if you're in charge, if you're in leadership, if you're in authority, that means that the gods have put you there. So if we were to resist the authority, we are resisting the will of the gods because the gods, the gods have chosen who they want to be in charge. And in this context, this would have been Pharaoh. The gods have put Pharaoh on the throne. And any resistance to Pharaoh's plan is a resistance to God's plan. Does that sound familiar? We still deal with that a little bit today, right? And what the story of the Exodus says is, no, 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 that's not how it works. This God, this God is not on the side of the powerful. This God is not on the side of those with wealth and privilege who are using their power, wealth, and privilege to oppress and marginalize, harm, and enslave others. This God is on the side of the oppressed. This God hears the cry. This God raises up the marginalized. This God has not abandoned those who are suffering. This God suffers alongside them. This God wills their liberation. I think one of the central message, messages of the Bible is that, that God is on the side of the oppressed and wills their liberation. Which means at any point when we're collaborating with some system that is oppressing others, we are actively working against the dream of God for the world. And the Exodus narrative calls us to realize that this God actually takes sides. This God chooses those who are forgotten. Uh, there, there's this really popular sort of, you know, we really don't need to take sides in the world. We just need to, we need to be Switzerland on everything. And, and that posture and position is born directly out of privilege. The idea of not taking sides means that you have no skin in the game that it is not going to affect you, that it's not going to harm you. When you see other people's rights being trampled, it's okay to stand back and, well, I, I really don't want to get involved. I don't want to take sides because it's not affecting you. It means that if that's the general posture with which we've been able to see the world, it means that we are coming from a place of significant privilege. 
And I sometimes think that the, the God we meet in the pages of the Exodus is sort of like, whoa, 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 who told you not to take sides? I'm taking sides. I'm siding with those who are being trampled by the powerful. And then we come to the Hebrew prophets. And I thought about reading you every cool passage in the prophets this morning, but I figured you might want to go to lunch at some point. So I'll just say this. If you read the prophets, they continually locate God on the side of justice. They continually locate God in the struggle of the poor, the marginalized, and those on the underside of power. They continually call those of wealth, power, and privilege to repent. And, and repent very literally means to change your mind. To realize that you've been going one way and it's actually been really destructive and you turn around and go the other way. And that's not just Old Testament Hebrew Bible prophets. That's New Testament prophets as well. That's Jesus Right? One of my favorite moments in the Jesus story is when he goes to his hometown to give a sermon. And when he does, he unrolls the scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And here's what, he re here's what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus doesn't say, you know, God helps those who help themselves. So if you find yourself in one of these categories, you better start working harder. Jesus reads the words of the prophet and says, this is the work I'm about. Which, by the way, if anybody ever like, says to you, well, you know, Jesus came to bring spiritual liberation, not physical liberation. Just read them the Bible. <laughs> but because I don't, like, Jesus doesn't qualify with spiritual liberation. His movement was one of going around and providing free health care, Right, going around and including those who had been excluded. His movement and mission was one of sitting down at the table with all sorts of people who should never have been at the table together, who in the dominant culture would have been rejected and left out. And they all sit at the same table and they all eat the same food and they all drink the same drink. And he essentially says, this is what the kingdom is. The kingdom is all the wrong people at the table, only to discover that they're actually the right people. This is the movement Jesus is doing. And also in the Jesus story, God takes sides. Um, spoiler alert, Jesus gets executed. He dies. And de death on a Roman cross was the ultimate humiliation and defeat. As you hang naked and bloody in front of every passerby who wants to hurl insults. Jesus dies. And what does Easter mean if it doesn't mean that God chooses Jesus' side? That Easter is God saying to the empire that killed him, your way is not right, your way is brutal, your way is death, I'm raising Jesus up, I'm vindicating Jesus, I'm, I'm siding with Jesus' vision for the world. That's the Easter story. God sides with Jesus' vision for the world. The resurrection, Jesus being raised up, is God's way of saying that the powers of death, the powers of oppression, the powers of hate do not have the final word. That is not how this world could, can be or should be run. There's a better way to live in the world. In the stories and texts of our tradition, we find God again and again choosing to be on the side of those who've been marginalized and disempowered. Again and again and again. And almost 2,000 years later, unfortunately, the dominant church 
posture in this country at least, and others as well, I'm sure, is not to side with those who have been disempowered. It is not to side with the marginalized. It's to create little mini Romes and put a cross on it and call it a Christian movement. When it's actually the opposite of what Jesus is up to. I mean, that very idea, God helps those who help themselves. Like, it really feels like it should have a Made in the USA sticker on it. Right? Because this, this is what often comes up when we talk about that there are people who don't have enough food to eat. Well, God helps those who help themselves. There are people who are struggling to feed their kids. Well, God helps those who help themselves. There are people who are sick. Well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. It's interesting that we can take a story about this Jesus who walks around feeding people and healing them willy-nilly. Right? With no, just, just walking around healing people. Just walking around feeding people. 5,000 people hungry, boom, buffet. And then somehow we morph that and transform that into, well, you know, the Bible says the poor you'll always have with you. That's not a command, it's an observation. That is not a command. Well, if we don't have the poor always with us, then maybe the Bible's wrong. Let's prove the Bible wrong. What, what if we prove the Bible wrong on this? What if we don't have to have the poor with us always? What if everybody had enough? What if everybody had a roof over their head? What if not everybody had enough food to eat? What if everybody had good health care? What if everybody had what they need to flourish as human beings? What if the goal of our politics in this country, and by the way, politics is religion and economics is religion and religion is politics and economics because it all kind of wadded up together and it's inseparable. What, what if like the idea of jubilee the, the idea of equity, the idea of enoughness, what if that became our compass? What, 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 if, what if we had people who instead of playing to a base told their base, you need to actually be transformed into more compassionate human beings? What if? Because this idea that God doesn't take sides can only be said like somebody, by somebody like me who was born into this world and has lived every day of my life in this world with a privilege. Not something I earned, not something I deserved. I just, it was handed to me at birth. And so it's super easy to, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. It's, it's, like, it's like being born on third base and then telling everybody you hit a triple. <laughs> right? And if you don't get sports metaphors, I, I thought all week, like, what's the opposite of that? That it's not sporty, but look up what a triple is, and it'll make sense. But, but that's what it is. It's like, it's like being born with all of this and saying, look what I did. I forget the movie, but there's this, there's this movie um, where the guy, one of the guys in it says, you know, I, I started this company by myself with my own two hands from the ground up, and all I had was a million-dollar loan from my father. And I cannot remember what movie that is, but, but that's, that, that's it, right? That's it. That's it. I did this all by myself with a million-dollar loan from my father. I actually think God helps those who help themselves is really toxic because it produces some stuff in us that we actually don't need to carry. And the first thing it produces is shame. 
right? Like, oh, well, so if things aren't going well for me, if I feel like God's not helping me, that must mean I'm not helping myself. So I need to work harder. I need to do more. I need to give more. I need to sleep less. I need to do all the things more, right? And it produces this sense of shame that if things aren't going the way they should be, then it's totally on me. And that's just not always true, is it? Some people have been dealt really, really crappy hands and it's not their fault. It's just what they were dealt. And when we, God helps those who helps themselves them, we are pushing them farther down the shame tunnel instead of pulling them out and seeing them and hearing their story and wondering, my gosh, what do we do about a system that does that to people? What do we do about a system that actively harms people? The last thing we need is more shame to carry around. The last thing we need is more I'm not enoughness to carry around. Because you, right now, as you are in this moment, you are enough. You just are. Do you have things to work on? I'm just speaking from my own, knowing me. Yes, we all have things to work on. But you're enough. Who you are in this moment is enough. And then it produces, I think, avoidance. We use this to avoid dealing with the problems we have in the world. We use this to avoid dealing with structures and systems that are harming people because people are just supposed to, supposed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. How many of y'all even have bootstraps? I think if, we have to, if we're supposed to pull ourselves up by them, they need to be provided for us. Right? But it creates this avoidance. It allows us to distance ourselves from the problems. And do you know every system that exists in this world, every system that exists in this country, we created. Think about that. The stock market, we made that up. <laughs> Systems that are unfair and unequal and unequitable for large segments of our country, we made all that up. Like, it didn't fall out of the sky. And we stand in front of these unjust systems and go, I just wish we could do something. I just wish we could do something. Y'all, we, we can do something. But we have to stop telling ourselves, well, this is just how the world works. It doesn't have to be. This is just what happens to, nope, it doesn't have to be. We, we can do something different. I also think God helps those who help themselves is, is toxic because it produces a deep misunderstanding of what grace is. One, thing I, one of the things I remember growing up and being taught was grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God being for you and on your side, not something you've earned. Like God doesn't, isn't for you and on your side because of your performance. God isn't for you and on your side because you attended all the right things, believed all the right things, done all the right things. God is just on your side because you exist. Now, that, we also learned a lot of other stuff about grace. Like grace is a free gift. All you have to do to get it. Whoa, 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 whoa. I feel like this is the fine print. Like, what do you mean all I have to do to get it? Now, is there a truth that maybe grace is already yours, but and, and when you tune into it, it begins to do other things in your life and transform you? Of course, of course. But you already have it. It's already yours. It is a gift. It is a gift that nobody can take away from you. It is, it is a gift that even you can't take away from yourself. 
That's what grace is. And God helps those who help themselves, put, puts into us this idea that I have to prove, that I have to prove that I've got grace, that I have to prove that I'm on the path, that I have to prove that I'm good, that I'm spiritual, that I'm right. And actually, you know what grace means? Grace means you don't have to prove anything because it is already yours. And ultimately, this idea God helps us, helps us, it, it produces an anti-Christ-like culture. And here's what I mean. It, it, it messes up our politics, and it, it gives us a sense that privilege is something we've deserved, that we did more than everybody else around us, and so we got it. That's just not how privilege works. That's not how privilege works. And it creates this culture where we look at other human beings, human beings maybe who are struggling, who are suffering, and we think, well, they're suffering and struggling because of something they've done. They haven't done enough. They didn't do enough. They didn't blah, 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 enough. Folks, that's just not how the world works. Yeah, sometimes we make choices that make our lives more difficult, but, but that's, not the, that's not the norm. It's not the norm. And what we find popping up, even in Second Thessalonians, in the second century, is maybe the church shifting a little bit and, and kind of leaving some of that Jesus radicality of everybody in this community eats, period. You know that line that we read earlier, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat? I disagree. I disagree. The writer of Second Thessalonians is wrong. Every human being should eat. Every human being should have enough. No human beings should suffer from a lack of food. You, know, you, you remember last year, we, we did a series through the Beatitudes. Anybody catch that series we did through the Beatitudes? The, the blessed are, the blessed ours. I was thinking back to them this week, and I was thinking about that translation we talked about for what the word blessed means. And we said blessed essentially means that God is with you, God is on your side, right? That's what blessed means. God is with you. God is for you, God is on your side. Maybe there's a song about that. Um, God is with you, God is on your side. Listen to the Beatitudes again. Remember, these Beatitudes are not things you're trying to live up to. They're not like, when you enter this, when you finally live up to this category, you're blessed. These are announcements to people who find themselves in really rough situations that right in the middle of the situation they're in, God is with them, God is for them, God is on their Side, listen to these. God is with the poor. Now, it's not saying if you really want God to be with you, you have to go find, no, no, no. This is an announcement to people who find themselves in this category. God is with you. God is on your side. God is with those who mourn. God is with the meek, those who get trampled and stepped on all the time. God is with those who are hungry and thirsty, both literally hungry and thirsty and those who are hungry and thirsty for justice that has been denied. God is with the merciful. God is with the, those who are pure in heart. God is with the peacemakers who end up getting shot at from both sides. God is with those who are being persecuted. God is on their side. Those are the Beatitudes. And Jesus doesn't caveat that with, but you know, really, God helps those who help themselves. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have a role. We talked about last week, God longs to partner with us to transform the world right here 
and now. We, of course we have a role to play should we choose to step into it and accept it. But that participation doesn't make God suddenly care about you. You signing up and saying, yes, God, let's change the world. God doesn't suddenly go, I was going to ignore you, but now that you've helped yourself a little, I'm going to help you. God has always been on your side. And church, let me say this. The way God's presence is, at least in my own experience, is most felt and realized is through other human beings showing up and other human beings being on somebody's side. And we face so many challenges right now in this particular country we live in, in this particular state we find ourselves in. Lots and lots of people whose rights are in danger. Lots and lots of people whose voice is not being heard. They're not voiceless, they have one. It's not being listened to. And the way we best support is to show up and, and be an actual presence to say God is with you, God is on your side. Incarnation has always been the point, right? This idea of, of the divine becoming flesh, the divine being wrapped in skin and blood and bones, that, that has always been the goal. And I think the truth is, while we've been waiting on somebody to show up and do that for us, the invitation to us has always been, all along, you go do that. You go be the incarnation of the divine in the moment that needs you. You go be the incarnation of the divine to the person who's hurting. You go be the incarnation of the divine offering food to the hungry. You go be the person standing alongside this. Maybe your rights aren't being threatened. That means you're privileged. So you should use that privilege and leverage it in every possible way for the benefit of those who have not had that privilege. We have two options with privilege, by the way. We can feel, well, three. We can just celebrate it and ignore our responsibilities. We can feel guilty about it and ignore our responsibilities. Or we can realize it and leverage it to change the world. And I hope that's where we find ourselves. With more people willing to leverage the privilege they've been given to transform the world into a more just and generous place. Does God help those who help themselves? I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that every single one of us, God is on our side, willing our transformation, willing our liberation, willing our wholeness. That right now, right as you are where you are, grace is yours. You don't have to fill out the form. You got it. And there's a world that is desperate in desperate need of knowing that this God that they've been told wants nothing to do with them unless they do X, Y, and Z is actually right there with them in the moment they're in, right here and right now. And the way they'll know that is through us. Are you with me? Let's pray.